Welcome to another episode of the SaaS Podcast. I'm your host, Omar Khan, and this is the show where I interview proven founders and industry experts who share their stories, strategies, and insights to help you build, launch, and grow your SaaS business. In this episode, I talk to Nicholas Vandenberg, co-founder and CEO of Chili Piper, a SaaS platform that helps you instantly turn inbound leads into qualified meetings. Nicholas grew up in France and wanted to travel around the world. He applied to Stanford so he could live in California for a couple of years before continuing his travels. But all his plans changed when one day Steve Jobs gave a talk to his class. Nicholas was so inspired that he decided that he was also going to become a tech entrepreneur. Ironically, Nicholas's first startup was co-founded with John Scully, the guy who became CEO of Apple and eventually fired Steve Jobs. Nicholas's latest startup, Chili Piper, was founded when he and his wife identified a niche problem with companies losing leads because they couldn't respond quickly enough to inbound leads they received from their website. He wanted to be sure he was solving a worthwhile problem, so he told his first potential customer that he could build them a solution for $20,000. The customer paid him up front. And that's how they got started. But like most startups, when you look deeper, you also discover a bunch of problems and challenges. And it was no different for Nicholas. He said most people wake up and check their email every morning, but he used to check his bank account and worry if he had enough money to pay the bills. And at one point, he ran out of money and couldn't pay his employees. However, despite those challenges, they bootstrapped the company from zero to over $5 million in annual recurring revenue and recently raised $18 million in funding. It's a great conversation with a serial entrepreneur who shares a lot of useful insights. I think you'll find the story inspiring and entertaining. Nicholas, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Do you have a quote, something that uh, inspires or motivates you that you can share with us? I'll tell you, I have two. There's one that has inspired me all my life. It's uh, originally in Latin. It's uh, fortune favors the bold. Right? The idea that you're going to be lucky if you take risk and be brave. I think I wrote that when I was 17 somewhere and I've kept it uh, all along. And then more recently, uh, as I'm doing a startup and you goes ups and downs, I came across a, a quote that I actually printed and put it on my desk and I have it in front of me. Uh, somebody said, uh, in the end, I always win. And if I'm not winning, it's not the end. And I find that very appropriate for a SaaS company because you go through up and down and you really think if I'm not winning, I just have to continue until I do win. So that's what is in- inspiring me these days. I really like that. Actually, I really like both of them. But uh, that one in particular, I think, you know, most of us could probably look at that and uh, every day and find some some inspiration and motivation to keep going, especially on the bad days. All right. So for people who aren't familiar with Chili Piper, can you just give us an overview? What does the product do? Who is it for? And what's the main problem that you're helping to solve? Sure. So we're a sales tech company. We help sales team and marketing teams. Our core product is actually very simple to understand. When companies spend a lot of dollars, so mostly B2B companies, to attract visitors on their website, the call to action is a form. So you have a form, you say, contact us. And the prospect fills the form. 
And upon submission, they get a thank you page. Thank you. Somebody is going to call you. And the prospect is left wondering who is going to call me and when. And the amazing um, industry secret is that companies lose more than half their prospect in, in this uh, interaction. People are proud to convert at 40%, which means that they actually lose 60% of their prospects because nobody called them back or, they, or it was a Sunday and it took too long or the prospect disappeared. So we've built this intelligent agent that uh, our customers put in their web page. Upon form submission, when the prospect comes, say, I'd like to talk to somebody, in real time, we're going to find, we're going to qualify that prospect, make sure it's the right uh, target. Then we're going to find the right rep to take the meeting and we can dial the rep's phone and dial the prospect, put them in touch in real time, or we can retrieve a calendar and have the prospect book a meeting. And as a result, conversion rates double, so go, go from 40% to 80%. So that's, that's our, our core business. We call that inbound revenue acceleration because that's exactly what it does. It's for inbound and it accelerates revenues. It doubles your pipeline from the same uh, marketing spend. And from there, we've expanded into a suite of uh, booking tools and workflows around meetings. So all the uh, pieces that you may need. So for example, to uh, agree on the time to meet by email, we have these smart suggested times where I can send you three times and if you click on it, we'll book the meeting in one click. We also have signatures that are smart where you can book a meeting from a signature. So we've expanded into uh, a suite of tools around meetings. That's what Chili Pepper does. So how did you come up with the idea for this business? So a lot of companies have started around an idea. I have an idea and I'm going to do it. This is my fourth company and it was done a bit differently. We started with a thesis, not an idea. The thesis was that the world of sales is going to be changed by digital uh, apps and uh, it's going to be a huge market. That's what we want to do. So and I, when I say we, I started actually with um, my wife, Alina, who was running product at Pearson and before that at Bloomberg. So she had a lot of expertise in B2C apps. She had uh, very successful launches. For example, uh, one of our apps was coded by Steve Jobs when he launched the iPad. What app was that? She was at Thomson Reuters at the time, and uh, it was a news app. So he showed all the uh, all the different categories on the iPad, and for news, he showed the uh, Thomson Reuters app that she had designed. Nice. So we, we had this thesis, and then we decided to go to market, and we came up with the idea, original idea. We actually didn't come up with it. We talked to potential customers and asked them what problem they had, and one customer said, I have this problem of booking meetings. So my prospecting team needs to book meetings for my uh, selling team. And we need to round robin these meetings. And it's very complicated. They get confused and which account executive they should book with. Can you help with that? So we said, we will help. We'll build the solution, but you have to prepay $20,000. And they said, yes. And then we checked a bunch of other companies say, hey, do you have this problem of a handoff between teams uh, around this meeting and scheduling? And we found that half the companies we talked to had the same problem. So that's how we got started. We got a real commitment. There was money uh, up front because the problem was serious. And we knew that other companies had the same problem. And once we got in business, then we can, we looked at other problems around, around meetings, around booking, and we um, came across that inbound process that's broken and decided to find a solution for that. So we, we went in steps. And we uh, started with something that was actually brought to us by a customer. That's how we did it. Uh, who was that first customer? It's a company called Five Stars in San Francisco. They do um, loyalty programs for small businesses. So they have a high volume of uh, customers. 
they need to book very fast, right? Especially in, in the B2SMB, if you, if you wait too long, you lose a customer. So it used to be the process where somebody would be on the f- phone with a potential customer and it would take them seven minutes to book the meeting. In seven minutes, you have to hang up the phone. The prospect is not confirmed. So you have a lot of leakage. So they were, it, it was a mission critical for them to get that process uh, streamlined. And after that, the second customer was a company in New York called Greenhouse, a SaaS company, well-known. It turned out that they had the same problem and they were very focused on efficiency and they were willing to uh, take a bet on our, on our startup and buy our product. So I'm kind of a little curious about this because when I was looking at Chili Piper and this whole idea of you know, a scheduling app that's that's used by sales teams, I was kind of like, isn't this similar to a lot of other scheduling tools that you might get out there, like, you know, Calendly or x.ai or, or these types of things? And then the way that you've described it is obviously it's kind of more sophisticated and there's a particular kind of couple of use cases that you're kind of going out and solving. But I'm curious, when you talk to these customers, had they tried those types of solutions and not been able to make them work for a particular reason? It just seems like, you know, when I look at what you've built with the business today, it's pretty impressive. Yet when if we sort of travel back in 2016 and sort of look at the opportunity, I would be thinking, well, is there really that much of an opportunity when there's already these type, so many different types of solutions out there? So what, what is it that I'm missing here? Yeah, yeah, no, that's a very good question. The answer to your question is yes, they had tried with other solutions. And the um, problem is that the scaling solutions are quite simple. Uh, exposing availability in a calendar is, is quite trivial, something actually we did in, in, a, in a week. So what we went after is a much more complicated problem is, is uh, scheduling in the context of a process. I think that's what people get confused when they think a cheap because there was scheduling, there's a lot of scheduling. Well, there may be a lot of scheduling, but our solution for inbound, we are the only ones. So we have a no discount policy and uh, we never discount because we, ne- we never under competitive uh, pressure on pricing because we are the only ones. So it's all in the details, right? If you're looking at the inbound process, you say, well, the form, I can put Calendly or one of these, but it doesn't work that way because you have to qualify the prospect. You have to route. You have to check in Salesforce that whether there's an existing account or not or in another CRM. You've got to do all sorts of of steps in the workflow. And the actual scheduling piece is is a small piece in in that ensemble. And when five stars at the time asked us to solve the problem, we understood uh, we, we, it was the scheduling piece was a small piece uh, compared to, uh, to the rest of the solution. And it's the same thing now, right? So it's not, uh, it's all about the entire process and all the things that need to happen around it that are, that are complex. The um, interesting thing in our current product is that the return on investment is very obvious because we doubled the pipeline, right? So the, what is at stake is very high and companies are willing to pay money to get the fully automated solution if it's going to double their pipeline. So that that's the thing. It's, it's, it's all about the details of the workflow and what needs to happen. It's actually, it's actually quite complex. In addition, we have to integrate with multiple systems. So the form is typically owned by the marketing team. So like, let's say they use Marketo, HubSpot, or Eloqua. So you have to make sure you, you integrate with the form. The CRM is another animal. So typically Salesforce or 
HubSpot, then we uh, have to integrate with uh, uh, Zoom, for example, or WebEx, like the the uh, scheduling solution. We um, so we have to put all the pieces together. And internally, it's more complicated than, than it looks from the outside. Yeah, and I think the key what you just said is like you know doubling the conversion, which is ultimately what you know the customers care about. I'm curious when you said to five stars, it's going to cost you twenty thousand dollars for a solution. Where did that number come from? Were you sort of thinking about this is, a, you know, what it's going to take to build an initial product or was it just a way of just validating how serious they were about this? Yeah, the latter. I just wanted a demand that was significant enough that it was helpful to us and, and the commitment to them, but low enough that they would say yes. I, I mean, I think it would have been worth a lot more to them to, uh, they would have paid a lot more. But it would have taken longer. It would have been a longer process. I was quite eager to get started. That was how we came up with this this amount. So, with this business, you bootstrap this to to about five million dollars ARR, and then you've taken some funding, and and we'll talk about you know what you've been doing there. And I think you hit profitability like in in year one. Is that right? That's right. So I, I want to talk about that. But before we do that, I think it would be really helpful just to talk a little bit more about some of your other companies, what you've done, and sort of how you arrived here. And that that I think is an interesting part of the story that I want to make sure we we sort of talk a little bit about, set the context, and then we'll sort of dig into what that first year looked like. Yeah. So um, as I mentioned earlier, it's my fourth company. The story is I, I grew up in the south of France and I didn't know um, anything about entrepreneurship. So I just wanted to travel around the world. And um, and I thought, you know, a good way to do that is to apply to Stanford Business School. Um, that will give me two years in California. And then I'll, I'll continue on my way. And my plan was to go to Hong Kong. It's ironic because Hong Kong is the only place, in one of the few places in the world I haven't been to. And when I got to Stanford, a few weeks into it, one of my classmates invited Steve Jobs to talk to us. And at the time, Steve Jobs was running next. And the joke was that he was going next to nowhere. And Steve Jobs sat on the floor and started telling us about how he started Apple and why he started next. And things. And I looked at that and said, this is um, unbelievable. That's what I want to be when I grow up. I want to be a tech entrepreneur. And so I stayed in, in the Bay Area. And I, that it was set that this was going to do. So I just, upon graduation, I, I started my first company. And fate has this twist where my partner in my first company was John Scully, the very CEO. Wow. Right, exactly. The very CEO who fired Steve Jobs. And it was just chance that I met him. We, we, we met a guy with the technology. We agreed on, on launching. A, what we did is that it was a Photoshop for dummies. So a way to, uh, or you could call it the, the grandfather of Instagram. It was a way to manipulate your photos on a PC. Uh, Easily. So I started that business in 1995 and we did 6 million revenues the second year, so the first year of shipment and 11 million the year after. And, um, and so that was going really well. Actually, we got an offer from um, a gaming company for 55 million 
in the end, Scully was not keen on taking it. So I sold my shares and I started another company because I wanted to, by, by now it's 1998 and everybody's doing internet around me. So I thought, as I said, well, it should be the internet of the future and, and uh, I should be a player. So I started a second company. That one was a bit crazy. I, um, the idea of doing a universal shopping cart, so helping websites with, with a shopping cart, multi-merchant, multi-website. And we, we grew to 65 people in 11 months with tons of customers. Then I got an offer to buy that company for $60 million. And I invested all my money in it. So I, I three-quarter of the company. So I was going to clear $45 million, uh, for 12 months of work, which was... <laughs> It looked too good to be true. I turned out that um, the deal didn't close in the end. The acquiring company was CNET with the, at the time of the dot bomb, so their stock dropped. Then the CEO called me and said, "We can't do the deal. Uh, I have to look at talk to investors." And in the end, I had to lay off more than half the, the team and uh, did a poor deal with uh, Microsoft. So that was my second company. So when you were in talks to to sell uh, the the product was Redcart, and when you were in in talks to sell that for 60 million. When you look back at that, do you think it was like, did it just take too long? And, and you know, you sort of think, oh, if we'd only been able to kind of negotiate and close this sooner, I would have had a, a more of a successful exit there. I think fortunately for me, I, I didn't take too long. I just, just thought about it and say, okay, let's do it. And I agree. So I actually have uh, Nothing to blame myself for. I said, yes, let's do it. And the deal didn't happen. It's one of the things that the market turned on us and, and nobody uh, had seen it coming, right? Even when it started happening, people said, oh, it's just a little correction. Nobody, it's the way a uh, human brain works. You know, it's hard to, to anticipate uh, that things that are going so well could go so badly all of a sudden. So uh, at the time I was in San Francisco, uh, when the first correction happened, everybody thought it would continue. So I, I, I didn't worry, but there, there was not much I could have done. The market turned on me and, and, uh, and that's what, what happened. So, and so how much did you end up selling it for? Uh, it was a single digit acquisition by Microsoft. They waited and waited until I was very, very desperate. And then it's okay, now let's do it. And they w- w- wiped out everything. <laughs> it was very, uh, I remember that they asked me to move to Seattle. I, I declined. Um, so my team moved to Seattle and uh, me, I, we had this huge warehouse as an office. It was the coolest office. And um, I packed everything. I locked the warehouse. I uh, dropped the box at a friend's house and I took an airplane to fly to Nepal to uh, go trekking in the Himalaya to recover (laughs) 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 up in the mountains. (laughs) Because I I ended up not making any money myself on that that deal uh, because we had investors and things. So I said, you know, I I figured I'm going to go to uh, the mountains and see people uh, who live on, uh, you know, $50 a month and then I'll stop complaining about it. So that's what happened. It worked very well. (laughs) You you always see people... (laughs) more challenged than you are and put things in perspective. Yeah, definitely. It gives you a lot, a lot of perspective. Okay, so that was company two. Company two. Then then I did a third one that I sold quickly in biometrics that I sold well. And then I thought I should become a VC. Assume that that's what entrepreneurs do when they grow up, they become investors. <laughs> so I was wrong. I, I was not so interested in being a VC. So uh, I did different, different things. And then I helped a friend. That's how I came up with uh, Chili Pepper. I helped a friend um, 
at a telecom company um, running sales team. So I was the VP of sales. That was 2011, 12. And um, when I actually started setting up the systems and I put everybody on Salesforce, I was amazed that uh, Salesforce hadn't changed, essentially hadn't changed in 10 years. And all the reps were reluctant to use it. And I thought, this is crazy because I have a hard time stopping my daughters from using their technology. And here's these salespeople, you have to beg them to use it. There should be these beautiful technologies available to salespeople. So that's, that's the thesis on uh, Chili Piper. I thought, you know, this world is going to change. Uh, somebody's going to come up with super cool tools that salespeople love as opposed to uh, hate and have to use. And that's going to be a huge market. So that's how Chili Piper got started. So I think all these different companies that you, you started and, and, and sold, there was obviously a lot of experience you, you built up from that. So as we get to year one of Chili Piper, how did you think about that? And what, what were you able to, like, what specifically did you do to be able to get to profitability in year one? I guess I'd been marked by this, this red card experience, right? So this time I thought, you know, essence of companies' revenues. So I want to go to revenues as fast as possible. So then um, we go, we went literally to day zero because uh, we actually had a, a prepayment from, from five stars when we, when we started. And so we, Alina and I um, put together a very small team. Our developers were actually in, in Eastern Europe. And we went fast to revenue, and, and then we tried to get to cash positive as soon as possible. So I did all the sales. She did all the onboarding, and, uh, and we kept the team very small, and we just signed up customers. And the problem we were solving is actually, was an acute problem. So after Greenhouse, we sold a couple of other well-known companies, and one of them was Square, the payment company which is quite amazing when you think of it because it's this big company growing super fast, relying on a core technology from a team of five. It was five of us back in September. And it was interesting because that, that when we got that deal with Square and a couple of the companies, that's when we turned cash positive. And from there, we kept growing and hiring, but based on our own cash. So it's, it's interesting because, I mean, you call this inbound revenue acceleration. And, you know, if anybody goes to the homepage of, Chili Piper, you'll see all kinds of logos, right? Not just uh, Square and Five Stars, but, you know, Facebook and Shopify and, you know, it list goes on and on. Now that you've kind of been in this space for a while, why do you think that this problem kind of wasn't really solved before and how is that this category evolved in the last few years? Like, are you seeing more competitors? Like what's happening in the landscape here? Yeah, it's a really good question. Honestly, when I realized there was this problem and I worked with uh, Alina and our CTO to come up with a solution and we started thinking, yes, I should work. It just seemed also too good to be true. I think that's impossible. I mean, why haven't anybody thought of it? So the same questions you had as we were building that product. Why hasn't? Because the problem is real, right? So people lose companies lose more than half their revenue. Yeah, and uh, it took me a while, but um, I think there is a, a reason for it. 
And the reason is that we sit at the intersection of uh, marketing and sales and they each focus on their own metrics. And that piece that we have is right in the bit in the middle. So marketing is the goal to bring uh, leads, right? So they do a lot of work. And if a form is submitted, then the lead is captured. They've done their job. And sales is about they have processes to follow up on the lead. The form is not theirs. Once, prospect has been submitted, it's pushed to a CRM and they're supposed to follow up and that's their process. So the idea that there would be a bridge in between these two processes is uh, something that nobody was focused on. So there, there was sales tech helping salespeople do their job. So for example, distributing these leads, assigning them. There's a lot of marketing tech helping these forms, but there was everybody was focused on their own part and nobody was focused on that bridge in, in the middle. So that that's my explanation of why people didn't, why this problem was still unresolved. And once we launched, I assume that a lot of people copy us, but it hasn't been the case. I think um, there's no question that it's a very tricky uh, development. And by now we, uh, we well known, we, we've done it. So, so we, uh, a leadership, I presume that people um, just think, no, we just, uh, this is already taken. We leave it there where it is. As for the logos, we actually we actually did it on purpose. We went after the very visible logos because we have this idea of uh, we call it the bullseye strategy, which is the idea that you know word of mouth plays such a huge role these days, and you want to go after the most influential uh, companies, so that when the next company says should I do that, they're going to look up to that influential company and say, well, oh, they do it, I should do it. So very early on with Alina, we. Uh, we focused our effort on, on signing uh, companies like I mentioned Greenhouse, Square, but we also signed a company called Segment, uh, the marketing tech, uh, very well known. And we uh, went after all these uh, logos. Now, as you've mentioned, we have uh, the Woods Woo of Tech is, is on our website. So it's a, a snowball effect, right? So once you've got these logos, then the more logos come. Did you get any pushback from some of the larger companies? What you're trying to solve here, there was clearly a pain and a need for something. But also, you know, if you're running a, a company like Square, I'm guessing there might be some concerns about, you know, do we want to really sort of have a dependence on this, you know, startup with a handful of people being sort of on the critical path of our, our sales pipeline? No, it's amazing. My God, we got zero pushback from that. It's, <laughs> we, we got pushback from other things, but that one, no. It's, 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 it's amazing. When we... Uh, Signed some of the larger customers. Uh, they had more people. Uh, so we did everything virtual, right? We are a distributed company. We never have in-person meetings, but we had Zoom calls, and they had more people on the Zoom call than we had in the entire company uh, very often. But but they no nobody nobody checked that. The pushback we've had is interesting. Uh, often sales is reluctant to change their process, which amazes me because they're going to do a lot better. But typically, the sales team has invested in sales development reps whose job it is to follow up with these leads. And they're concerned that they could lose their job, right? I mean, of course, what's really happening is that they get redeployed, but that's a concern. So we get pushback on that. So people find all sorts of reasons why what we do is not a good idea. Less and less, because now you see everybody's doing it. So you think, oh, I'm not going to be the only one continuing losing my pipeline. But at the beginning, uh, you, you also have a reason why uh, their situation is different and they need an SDR team to do it the other way. So that was the big pushback we kept getting uh, at the beginning. 
Now, people listening to this might be thinking, wait, you know, Nicholas has a great story. He's a serial entrepreneur. He came up with this idea and, you know, hey, bootstrapping five million beyond. And then, you know, now you've been raising money. You're at, you're at about $21 million that you've raised. Sounds great, right? It's just, he's he's kind of had it really good. But it wasn't always like that. Like, you know, when we were chatting earlier, you told me that, hey, for a long time, you know, people wake up and they check their email. You were checking something else. What was that? That's right. <laughs> I was chasing my Chase Bank app every morning to, to check our bank account. When you bootstrap, the, you at risk at any time. So actually, uh, every morning I'd open and see if a particular customer would pay, right? Because we ask every customer to pay up front. And that's how we finance ourselves. So actually, the irony that uh, we became cash positive, in, we started in January 2016, we became positive in October 2016. And in September, we ran out of money. But we knew that there were customers in, in, in the pipeline. So I asked the team members, I said, look, um, we're not going to have money to pay you. Um, how about you take stock? And they all said yes. They say absolutely, we're going to succeed. We'll pay in September 16 in stock, and of course, it was a very good idea because uh, the stock is not worth a lot of money. Yeah. So, so some actually, one of them actually uh, cashed out uh, that stock from the time and made more than half a million on on, on that deal. So it worked out, but but of course, it took uh, pace. So that was September, and then October we. Uh, the square deal with a bunch of other deals and the money came in but it was still never comfortable it was still uh, stressed every morning to check your bank account and see if you're uh, if you're going to make payroll um, at the end of the month and uh, of course we need to grow so we'd hire more people and there's a higher payroll uh, liability that we have to meet at the end of the month and we have to make sure we bring in revenue so uh, that bootstrapping for sure is not for the faint of heart yeah it's a it's a tough process so it sounds like it was more of a, a cash flow issue with with a lot of bootstrappers it's like hey I'm, I'm kind of still trying to find you know problem solution fit or product market fit for you it sounds like by that time you were pretty confident that you were onto solving a worthwhile problem and you had a pipeline that at least gave you some confidence that you know the money would be coming in. So was this mainly just a cash flow issue? Yeah, yeah, that's a fair statement. Uh, because by the time our product was working, you know, and our customers were happy. So they, they would renew and extend. Um, it was working. And when we did this inbound solution, Segment did an A-B test and they found that they doubled their pipeline with us. So it was it was very uh, clear. They had some metrics that on the measurement uh, with a case study to show that it, that it worked. So you're right, we, we uh, had complete faith in our product. We knew the product worked and we knew it was a matter of uh, time and, and market adoption and, and managing the cash flow in the meantime. That's exactly right. So I mentioned a little earlier that you've raised about 21 million. You closed a 18 million round a few months ago. I think it was in June. Yeah. And 3 million last year. Why did you not raise money sooner? Why did you decide that you were going to keep bootstrapping this business despite the, uh, you know, the, the out of money 
kind of dilemma in sort of the first nine, 10 months? Yeah, yeah. So at first, we wanted to bootstrap because we thought it was a good discipline, especially because we sell to salespeople. So we wanted to very quickly have this experience of, a, of a closing deals and revenue. Thing. We thought it was going to be the right start for the DNA in the company. But it wasn't the intention that we'd bootstrap for a very long time. It was just we wanted to show that we can get there. So, And then what happened is that uh, people, uh, a bit like what you were saying earlier, um, potential investors didn't understand what we were doing. It looked like it was just a little calendly thing. And uh, so we received offers that were never priced at what we expected, right? Because we, we could see it was going to be a big market. And, they, and either they were telling us, oh, it's a small market, we're not interested. Or they were telling us, oh, that's great. Uh, here's, here's a term sheet uh, that was way below what we expected. So that's what happened. We, um, we thought, you know, if, if, we, if we're not going to get the terms we're looking for, we don't need the money, we're going to continue. And we did. All the way until uh, it became more obvious that that we on to a very big market that we're doing well and and then and then the uh, all view of the business and the external view of the business starting started to meet and then this year it wasn't that hard to get funding and and sort of more favorable terms yeah this year, this year I'll tell you it's been fascinating uh, so Back in November, uh, we had VC discussions, and I, I got again two term sheets uh, price below what we wanted. We said, "Okay, we're not going to take them." It was November uh, 2019. Then in March, when the COVID happened, everybody freaked out. So we, we by then we had a first investor. We said we need to raise money to make sure we don't go bankrupt. But nobody was interested in giving me money. <laughs> in March, in March, uh, all VCs were puzzled and didn't know what to do and had closed their uh, checkbooks. So instead, we said, well, we're not going to waste our time banging them. We're just going to focus on the business and make sure we can operate safely. So that's exactly what we did. We uh, just focused on bring, uh, renewing customers, understanding which customers were not going to be able to make it and so on. And then something really weird happened that around May, June, the world of software exploded. So the VC started, uh, first of all, they had like three months inactive. Uh, so they had all this money that they needed to invest. Also, they saw that some software companies were doing really well in spite of the crisis. So that flipped completely. And all of a sudden, there was an oversupply of money for tech companies. And that's... Uh, what we took advantage of when we did this A-round. I'm thrilled with our investor base 10 and, and Gradient and original sort of Flashpoint. They, they're great teams, but we had many uh, other offers. We were completely oversubscribed with other firms begging us to take their money when just three months before, nobody would give us money. So it's, it's been very interesting. And now with the uh, IPOs uh, being super successful, like uh, Asana yesterday and, and Snowflake, one of our customers, uh, now worth $60 billion, it's even more so. There's, there's this supply of money. So obviously, if we were starting now, the conditions would be very different. And I think we'd, we'd go and take money uh, much earlier because the terms that you can get are much more favorable. 2020 has just been the craziest year ever. Yes. But, but you know, it's crazy, but, but for us, it works out really well. We're continuing uh, doubling year over year. We, we raise $18 million. We're developing products. 
so it's it's hard uh, uh, you know everybody says I, I wish I could delete 2020 and we say well I don't want to delete 2020 because it, it got us some money in the bank <laughs> if you delete 2020 don't delete the 18 million <laughs> <laughs> All right, we need to uh, wrap up in a few minutes. But uh, before we do that, I want to talk about your other company, which you are running in parallel. So That's can right. you tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, so people think I'm crazy, but um, the other company is called Cosmo Time, and it's something that I uh, figured I needed. So it's it's uh, to do list. With a twist, so reinventing a tool list, we uh, doing a tool list that's focused on helping you actually do the tasks as opposed to list the tasks. So I suppose we shouldn't even call it a to-do list because it's a to-do. Uh, a doing list. Uh, that's right, a doing list. <laughs> exactly. And, uh, you know, I tried all sorts of to-do lists, like to-do list, uh, things, uh, Trello, and nothing worked for me. It's not, uh, I figured that, Late in life, that I have this condition called ADHD, you know, with a very hard time to focus. And when I understood that, I said, you know, I need something to help me, and this thing is, uh, don't help me. So I just started to solve the problem by starting a company and building the software. And that's exactly what uh, Cosmo Time is. It's um, combined. Uh, so the, 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 there are three core ideas. One is that um, you combine the to-do list with your calendar, so you can schedule your task and block the time in your calendar. Then there's an, an additional way to do that is what we call a sprint so you can group tasks together that are related so that you don't have a to switch context so say you're going to do everything's finance related you you bundle them in a sprint and then you block friday afternoon and you just execute all these tasks that are related so it's to minimize context switching the third one is distraction blocking so we close your tabs we close your notifications you close everything, you can stay focused, do your task, and when you finish, we uh, reopen. So I, I completely love it. It's my uh, it's my secret weapon in, in being productive. I do have to work extra hours, you know, so, and some people tell me, uh, why do you do that? Why don't you just focus on Chili Piper? And the truth is that, uh, you know, some people watch football at night. Me, I'd rather be working on a tech company than, you know, I used to play a lot of tennis. I actually stopped. I said, you know what? If I have a few, few hours, I'd rather spend on Cosmo time and figure out uh, how to do the product better. So that's what I decided to do. I said, I'm going to just go and build the, the, that solution. is too cool. So how, how many people do you have working on Cosmo time? Cosmo time, it's uh, five of us. And how do you balance your time? Is this kind of more like... Uh, okay, you know, Chili Piper is my day job and this is something that I sort of think about evenings or weekends or whatever, or is this sort of just mixed in and you're sort of jumping from one to the other depending on the day of the week? It's mixed in, but I have long, long days. <laughs> I, start, <laughs> I start a day to finish at 10 or 11, work most weekends. So uh, it's all mixed in. But as I said, I don't... Uh, it's by choice. I uh, just enjoy it. Uh, it's the kind of thing I like to do. So after dinner, I come home with dinner. We have a little boy at home, take care of the boy. And when he goes to sleep, I just go back to uh, to doing the work. And it's mixed in. So I definitely spend more than a full time on Chili Piper and I find additional time for Cosmo Time. It's, it's a really interesting product. And as I told you, I, I always kind of geek out on to-do lists and yeah you've got to try it i, I will and i'll i'll be uh, sending you lots of feedback 
That'd be great. Awesome. Let's wrap up and get on to the lightning round. So I'm going to just ask you uh, seven quick fire questions. Just try to answer them as quickly as you can. Ready to go? Yeah. What's the best piece of business advice you've ever received? I got a piece of advice from my uh, professor at Stanford Business School who used to say, good decisions come from good options. And what he meant by that is that if you want to make a good decision, make sure you prepare, prepare several alternatives that you can then choose from. And that has consistently been uh, super helpful in, in, in my uh, business career. Good decisions come from good options. What book would you recommend to our audience and why? I want to since the audience is um, around SaaS and entrepreneurs. Uh, instead of a book, I would recommend for everybody, everybody to go and read Paul Graham essays on the web. He has, a, I don't know by now, he must have uh, 45 different essays that he could compile into a book. That should be the Bible of every uh, SaaS entrepreneur. What's one attribute or characteristic in your mind of a successful founder? I think for sure the number one thing that matters is market vision. You've got to be able to understand how the market is reacting and where the market is going. Everything else, you know, the hiring, you can make mistakes on that, but if you don't have the right market vision, you're not going to get product market fit and you won't have a company. So that's the number one talent. I think I already know the answer to this one, but what's your favorite personal productivity tool? Or <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> yeah, it's cost more time. It's changed my life. What's a new or crazy business idea you'd love to pursue if you had the extra time? Well, I think I already <laughs> my hands <laughs> full, so it's cost more time. Uh, I haven't had a chance to think of anything else. What's an interesting or fun fact about you that most people don't know? So when I came to the US, everybody assumed that I would know... Uh, I would be a connoisseur in wine because the French is supposed to know wine and, and I know very little about wine and I didn't have the right talent. So I decided to build my expertise in <laughs> cognac. So I'm a, I'm a cognac expert. Love it. Uh, and finally, what's one of your most important passions outside of your work? I'm uh, super interested in understanding how people make decisions, their behavior. So I read a lot of books uh, around neuroscience, neuroscientists in an amazing phase right now where they keep discovering new things. There's this um, professor called Paul Glimcher at uh, New York uh, University, NYU. He has open web seminars uh, where he invites scientists and all that, and, and I love it. So that's a passion of mine to try to understand what's happening in the brain and why, why we, we act a certain way versus another. Awesome. I've loved this conversation. I'm really glad uh, I got a chance to sit down with you, Nicholas, and, and uh, not just talk about Chili Piper and, and Cosmo Time, but just your background and, and your experiences. And it's just such a fascinating story. So thank you for making the, the time to talk with me today. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Now, if people want to find out more about Chili Piper, they can go to chilipiper.com. That's right. And uh, also check out Cosmo Time. That's Cosmo with a K. Yeah. Cosmotime.com. And if people want to get in touch with you, what's the best way for them to do that? Oh, they can connect on LinkedIn. Okay, great. And we'll uh, include a link in the show notes to that. Nicholas, thank you. It's been a pleasure. Wish you all the best. Yeah, thanks a lot. Take care. Cheers.